Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done uh, over 525 of them now. And uh, if this is new to you and you'd like to listen to previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is Rabbi V. Ish Shalom, Ph.D. He is a professor of wisdom traditions at Naropa University and is the founder of Kaduma, a universal mystical school that teaches a step-by-step approach to spiritual awakening and personal development. Integrating the timeless wisdom of the great mystical traditions with cutting-edge knowledge of psychology, science, and the somatic healing arts, Zvi gently points us towards the primordial light of boundless freedom that abides at the heart of our experience. He is the author of the book, The Kaduma Experience. Uh, let me get that on camera. Um, the Primordial Torah, and he teaches retreats, workshops, and inner work groups internationally. He's based in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome, Zvi. <laughs> I said, said Zvelkom, Zvi. <laughs> and I met Zvi out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in October, and it was nice. We were actually going to do this interview then, and I had publicized it, but we were both feeling a little tired, and we had scheduled the interview for the nighttime. We thought it would be better to put it off and do it over Skype. So that's what we're going to do now. As usual, I've read quite a bit and listened to quite a bit of your talks and your book uh, over the past week or so. You alluded in both to some very profound, um, transformative, and really rather um, difficult in many ways, awakening that you had back in your 20s. Now you're about 40, I guess. But I didn't hear much elaboration, so I thought it might be interesting for me and for the viewers to give us the whole story about that, even if we took an hour talking about it or whatever you feel is justified, to just explain to us what you went through and how, what led up to it and how it changed you and things like that. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I'm just so happy to be here. So uh, I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you for having me, Rick. Oh, it's really a pleasure. I felt a camaraderie or affinity with you out at Sand when we met just very comfortable guy to sort of be with, no pretensions and very natural and down to earth. And reading your book, I'm quite amazed. And the book is basically a transcription of some talks you gave. And to be able to give such detailed talks, maybe you prepared for them a lot. Maybe they weren't extemporaneous, but there's such a wealth of, of wisdom and, and knowledge in them that I was, I was really impressed. So and one, one hint as to how you did that is at some point in your book, you talk about having developed a state in which when you read the Torah or any wise book, any spiritual book, a deeper meaning kind of jumps out at you, which wouldn't have had you not undergone the shift in consciousness that you did. Yeah, that's right. Part of that, those early experiences that I allude to in the book is a certain kind of opening of perception that allows a certain way of perceiving what is hidden behind the word, you could say. (laughs) So it's more, it's not so much an intellectual or a mental understanding of it. It's more of a sense, a felt sense of what the state is 
that the, the text is, you know, is communicating. That was part of what really opened up in a more clear way during that time. Just if I could interject, and I won't talk this much throughout the whole interview, but my sense of that is that the people who wrote these books were speaking from a certain level of experience, a certain level of consciousness. And generally, the people who read such books don't share that level of experience. And so something is seriously lost in the translation. And speaking of translations, also these books tend to be translated, and the translators don't have that level of experience. So there's a tremendous sort of crumbling of knowledge on the hard rocks of ignorance. But if you have a a level of experience or awareness approximate to that of those who wrote the books, then the meaning just comes through to you. The, the, The connection is lively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so at that time, I, I, I was not familiar with other traditions. I had not had experience reading sacred texts or spiritual books from you know, practitioners of other uh, wisdom paths. But after that time, and to this day, when I open up a book or, or a text, what stands out is more the frequency or the vibration of, of the experience that's behind those texts. And, and that's how I'm able, in a way, to appreciate and relate to these other traditions in a, in a deeper way that goes you know, beyond just the surface meaning of the, of the words. What if the book has been firstly not re- even written down for a couple hundred years after the person that it's written about has died? And then secondly, it goes through translations from maybe Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek or whatever to English, and then then you read the book. I mean, do you think that inevitably, regardless of what state of consciousness one is in, you're just not really going to get it? Or do you think that somehow the essence survives? I think it depends. I've, I've had the experience of still feeling the essence come through even after multiple translations and, and, and centuries, somehow you can still get a, you know, get a whiff of the original kind of transmission. But with each step that's removed from the source, it gets a little bit more diluted. I find that the easiest way to experience those direct transmissions is from uh, transcriptions of talks, actually. Uh, rather than from books that someone sits down and writes. It can go both ways, but there's something about the verbal uh, communication that, for me, is more immediate in the transmission. It's not edited. It's not refined to, to make it come across in a particular way, but it's very raw vibrationally. But then you're talking about living teachers, probably, rather than people who lived 2,000 years ago. Yeah, unless, like, for example, there, were, uh, there are Hebrew texts that were um, recordings of oral teachings as well. Somebody so, transcribed them. Yeah, you know, and I'm sure it's altered to some extent over the centuries, but you can get a whiff of the original kind of state. <laughs> okay. Well, we're getting a little arcane here, but it's an interesting point. In terms of you personally, how did you get started with this business? Were you one of these? I I often interview people who had profound mystical experiences when they were little children. And very often then it fades when they're starting to approach their teenage years. And sometimes then they, when they get to their late teens, early twenties, they, they attempt to recover it. But in your case, what happened? 
Well, I, uh, you know, I was, I, I was raised in a pretty traditional um, Orthodox home. So we lived a very, uh, I could say, religious life that I did experience as being, as having many, uh, much richness in terms of the dimensionality of the religious experience. So it wasn't just a, a rote performance of the, of the tradition, but there were, I did experience a deeper connection through those practices and rituals. I don't remember as a child having what I would call a mystical experience exactly. Um, but I did, I do remember feeling uh, a sense of connection to the divine. I would, I would put it that way. And it felt like a certain kind of implicit trust in the goodness of reality. You know, in those days I would frame it, you know, the goodness of God, right? Um, that there was a basic, there's like a baseline of benevolence that infused creation. So it was, it was a subtle thing. It wasn't like some kind of a fireworky type of opening. It was more of a ongoing sense of action. And it was, it was marked by these different uh, deepening experiences in the, in the tradition. So, you know, at different holidays, for example, we would go to synagogue and, and the particular kind of prayers of that holiday and the particular practices associated with that holiday would create a kind of gestalt of, of richness and inner vibration that uh, affected me, you know, That's I nice. guess, as a child. Yeah. So yeah. I felt connected through that, through that paradigm. But it wasn't until I was older, really, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, that I more consciously turned inward and really started practicing and studying the, the more contemplative and mystical uh, facets of the tradition. That turning marked a beginning of a process that I allude to or sort of point to several times in the book. But that whole process, which lasted a period of time, had many different aspects to it and many peaks and valleys, uh, but culminated in a really a radical kind of shift and transformation that in some sense marked, like I would say, like the beginning of my life. And, you know, it was like the end of a former life and the beginning of a new life. What did you learn or practice did you cook something up on your own or what, did you find something in the ancient text that you could apply as a practice or did you have a living teacher or what? You know, I didn't, I didn't have a teacher in terms of this, the dimension of spiritual experiences that I was having. I didn't really have a guide in that sense. I was studying, you know, I had gone through what's called the yeshiva system. So, you know, these very sort of traditional academies of, of Jewish learning which mostly was exoteric learning. Actually, I would say 99% of it was studying the Talmud and uh, Jewish law, those kinds of more performative kinds of works. But there's this whole rich inner dimension of Judaism that it wasn't until my late teens that I really discovered. And that's the teachings on usually referred to as Kabbalah um, and also Hasidism. Or Hasidut in Hebrew, and those bodies of wisdom really 
turned me on. Like I, when I first encountered them, I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is speaking to my, to my heart and soul in a way that the, the more normative teachings weren't able to touch. And so I really just dove in to study and it was mostly self-study, you know, self-guided study. I just started reading texts and getting hold of whatever I could. And, and I started meditating um, according to some of those practices. Uh, that combination of deep study of mystical texts and practicing the tradition that I had, you know, that I was so intimate with for my whole life, but from this different angle, more from a contemplative and mystical angle. It was the combination of those two things that really sort of began an inner shifting, an inner transformation that really initiated and catalyzed this process for me. And so what was your experience of that shifting? Well, there was a lot to it. I mean, I, I would have to... Oh, we have time. Uh, yeah, at some point, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll write about it. The little snippets that you did write about or that you mentioned in some of your talks sounded pretty profound and pretty intense. Yeah, it was, it's true. And it's, it's something that I often don't talk about. So I actually think, I think this may be the very first time that I'm really uh, <laughs> sharing, some of those, sharing some of those details. So yeah, some people are reluctant to talk about this kind of stuff because it's intimate and they also don't want to sound like they're tooting their horn, you know? Isn't it cool what I experienced? But people find it fascinating. And, you know, it's like if you read Yogananda's book or something, you don't think Yogananda is sort of some egomaniac for talking about these profound experiences he had. You think, wow, it's possible for a person to have those kinds of experiences. Isn't that great? Maybe I could have them. So, I, you know, that's my orientation is that if we hear people's experience, it can inspire others to, you know, aspire to um, the same sort of thing or something, something that would be comparable for them. Yeah, it's totally. It totally makes sense. Um, traditionally, there's another. There's also another uh, reason why that some of those experiences are not shared, and that has to do more with, you know, not. Uh, wanting to to somehow erroneously present these fantastical kinds of experiences as something to be sought after, or that or as some kind of a as holding more value in some sense than you know a more gradual progressive path. You know the risk is you know that it would create more attachment for people to have it go a particular way. So I'm happy to talk about it, but I just want to have that caveat. Yeah. No, that's, that's really important. I mean, I, you know, I spent years and years, decades in a you know, particular meditation group, and um, I just wasn't the flashy experience type, and some people were, and I, there were definitely times when I was envious. <laughs> I was like, Josh, why, why aren't I having those things? But in the long run, it becomes evident that that's really not that important, that some people are just wired that way, others aren't. But the, the significant development is, um, as you say, more incremental, more gradual, more and more abiding. It's not uh, fireworks. Yeah, exactly. And in, in our school, in Kaduma, we emphasize really the gradual step-by-step, layer-by-layer path, since it is more integrated and more sustainable path for most people. You know, I my experience is, early on were very explosive and 
that brought with it also a lot of difficulties that um, are, weren't really necessary if I had had a more progressive path. So it's important, I think, for our listeners to appreciate that it, you know, if, if you don't relate to some of these experiences that I described, that that doesn't say anything or mean anything about your inner state in terms of uh, the value of your path. Yeah. And also, I mean, some of the people that in my experience who were having these flashy experiences back in the 70s ended up just going off the deep end in one way or another. I mean, I, I saw one, one woman in the paper getting arrested for you know, drug possession or something. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting to know that people can have these things, but it's, you know, if it's not happening to you, don't sweat it. And um, it's no guarantee of any kind of long-term significant development. But having said that, you know, usually you read people like Ramana or, or the Buddha or various others, and they definitely they had profound experiences. So it kind of goes with the territory, but it, there's not a tight correlation between that and ethical development or permanent uh, establishment in being or any such thing. Exactly. Yeah, if anything, it's, <laughs> it's sort of the other direction. <laughs> people who tend to have these explosive experiences tend to be less integrated and you know, more difficult for them to actually kind of mature into a full... Yeah, you know, they might yeah. be biting off more than they can chew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, now that we're clear about all that... <laughs> got set the stage here. <laughs> we, we've uh, established all the disclaimers. I would say that my personal path or those early experiences, I could divide up into two main, two main phases. The first phase was more of a, of a devotional phase that was marked by a deep practice of prayer. It wasn't like formulaic prayer, like just reciting, you know, the Hebrew sort of liturgy, which is the way I was trained to pray as a child, it was more personal prayer. So really spontaneously relating verbally through body language with the divine. You know, I would talk to God as a formal practice. This is actually found as a practice in the Hasidic tradition. And it, it wasn't that I was really following a particular thing. It was just more of, a, of an upwelling of inspiration that came just through my own you know, connection to and desire for the divine. Yeah, you mentioned that you would sometimes stay up all night in bed communing with God. <laughs> yeah. I was wacko. I was like nuts for God. I was, you know, love obsessed, you could say. Like, you know, if someone like meets someone and they fall in love with them and they're just like, they can't stop thinking about them and they want to be with them all the time and they want to talk to them on the phone all the time. It was like that. That's was, great. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra says that, that the yogis who have vehement intensity are the ones that, that realize most quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, in retrospect, I can look back and say, yes, that's actually, that's absolutely true. That I think that my path, in a sense, opened up because of that initial devotional enthusiasm, passion, heartfelt desire. Like, I didn't have any model really of where this was supposed to go. I had no real map that was laid out that I was trying to walk down. This was like a real heartfelt, self-inspired 
movement. Like I just wanted to know God. Would you say you were a pretty happy guy or were you suffering? And that, and so your yearning for God was born of that suffering. I certainly had all kinds of uh, suffering, not, what would it be like knotted up, but I wasn't unhappy. And I would say there were two threads to this movement. One was not connected to relief of suffering. It was really just for its own sake, like really just wanting to be intimate with the God that I had internalized, right? As being, you know, at that point, I didn't know what God was. I had all kinds of ideas about it. You just knew something was there and you wanted to know it. I believed that there was something that was there. And uh, that was enough to like get me, you know, and I had enough of a sense of, you could say, like a kind of benevolent spirit that's animating all of reality. As a child, I had already known that, not directly, but it was like a sense of it, you could say, that there was enough of that sense that I trusted that there was indeed such a reality behind the veils of perception. And so there was a, a movement toward that, to know that spirit that was more of the, for its own sake. And then there was another thread that was more along the lines of, wow, you know, life, <laughs> life is hard and I suffer. It would be really wonderful if this benevolent spirit like healed all my pain. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so there was also that kind of yearning, I think, for freedom from suffering. So there was both there at the same time. And both of those threads were kind of intertwined in a way in this prayer practice. So I was going deep into prayer and, and I also started uh, doing various kinds of meditations at that time. It was, it was at the same time, I would say in my early 20s, that I was getting turned on to these mystical texts and playing with different meditation practices that I was uh, discovering in these texts. So I think the meditation was also deepening the prayer and the prayer was sort of inspiring the meditation and the two were going hand in hand. But primarily it was a devotional inspired path at that point. And as I was deepening into that, what I started to experience was I started to feel myself drop into a real sense of intimacy. At first it started with intimacy with God, like that's what it felt like. And communion with God. And I started to, let's see if I can describe. It was as if it was a presence of sweet, innocent, pure, loving goodness and goodness in like the richest kind of textured way that started to grow inside of me. Like as I deepened my intimacy with what I was calling the divine at the time, and as I really started unloading my my wounds into this God field, you know, into this devotional field with God, like really expressing whatever it was that was in my heart, uh, even in my body, because this was a very embodied 
sort of practice of prayer. It wasn't just saying words. It was like moving with the spirit of what I was experiencing. So if I was experiencing pain, I would let my body kind of express that in its prayer to God. I would go into those postures. If it was experiencing anger or frustration, then I would, you know, yell at God and like, you know, like, you know, bang things and like kind of act it out in a way. It wasn't some, I didn't know about therapy or anything at the time, right? I was like this Orthodox kid just having out this whole thing with, with the divine. Um, and so as, as this whole process was unfolding, it was like my, the burdens of my soul were releasing and more and more of a kind of inner presence started to emerge, this presence of sweet intimacy. Nice. Don't let this question sidetrack you, but you know how you see the Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall praying and they're doing this thing where they're nodding their head like this back and forth. And I wonder if that's some kind of like a retrofit, um, you know, of what you were doing spontaneously. It's like maybe they read someplace originally that people went through movements when they were undergoing profound transformation. And so then they they did movements in order to they put the cart before the horse sort of, but I don't know. What is all that about? Yes. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> they call that shuckling, you know? That's okay. The, that's the term. And it's the, it's those, you know, as you described, it's those uh, body movements that go along with prayer. It's an interesting question. I, you know, in some senses, you know, there's also this theory about the, the asanas in, in Hatha yoga. Yeah. Whether they're spontaneous or they were retrofit, you know, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and and then when people have kundalini awakening, sometimes their body naturally contorts and, uh, you know, or they go through spontaneous mudras and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I've had those experiences, which I can, uh, which I can get to uh, when we talk about that. So I, I actually do believe that the, the yoga, that the yoga, the asanas and hatha yoga um, are reflections of, or you could say retrofit, you know, like you're saying, uh, from these uh, kundalini awakenings. Yeah. I mean, they may happen sp- spontaneously through a kundalini awakening, but also by doing them, they help to facilitate awakening because they kind of loosen up and f- help to free deep conditioning in the body. It's kind of like you can pull any one leg of a table and all the other legs will come along, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think the shuckling, which is to shake, really, that's what it means, you know, is a shaking, is also in some sense, it's what we don't know for sure, but I think is a good, uh, it's a solid hypothesis <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. to say that, that that movement reflects the spontaneous movements that, have, that can happen during prayer, because right. I've, I've experienced that. It's, a, it's kind of a mimicking of them, because probably those guys don't really have to do that based on their subjective experience, but people did that and so it somehow it became a thing yeah and it can bring people just like yoga right you just like the, the yeah maybe it the maybe it, it, bring it elicits something more, it brings them into a more embodied kind of connection to the prayer which can bring in a whole other kind of experience okay so. well that was a bit of a tangent but i'll let you get back to what you're saying yeah so this presence started to just kind of grow and 
you know, blossom in a sense inside me. And as it, as it grew, it became clear that I, you know, the way I started to relate to it was this is the divine presence that's like like birthing in me, you know, that's like growing in me because it had this quality of, it was such purity and had such a richness and depth to it. It was not like anything I had ever experienced before in ordinary human kind of mode of experience. It was like a kind of magical substance, a magical elixir of divinity, of divine presence. And this was starting to fill me up, you know, through this uh, process. And as it grew and started to nourish me from the inside out, it actually began to initiate a whole other process of deepening, I would say, that brought in, and there was a lot to this whole phase, but it brought in and it sort of inspired a whole other phase of the journey that was more of a phase of non-devotion, but of some kind of annihilation. Yeah, I- noted down some quotes from your book. You said there was a very intense black fire that consumed my entire body, soul, and and burned me away. There was literally nobody and nothing left at all. For a long time, I could not find any sense of self whatsoever. Yet everything carried on as usual uh, around me. I felt super alive. Uh, life unfolded in a spontaneous way. There was intense aliveness, but there was not anybody there that was alive. There's yeah. more, but I'll let you say some more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And before that whole, before that incident that I described <laughs> in, the, in the book, there was, you know, there was a lot that happened before that that kind of um, was a deepening into deeper and deeper states of silence. And, um, and it was also during this time that there was a lot of these spontaneous purification kinds of processes that were occurring that would be akin to of course at the time i had no language for this but it would be akin to some of these descriptions of kundalini processes where you're just kind of your body is clearing out all content (laughs) all you know you could say impressions from uh, our historical life our historically conditioned life and so there was a whole process of this that was going on for several weeks, a very, very intense kind of purification, you know. But, but somehow you realized that something good was happening. You didn't think you were having seizures or something like that. You know, it's kind of a miracle that I stuck with it because it was so, yeah, I, I trusted in a deep way that this was guided by the divine. It grew out of this deepening intimacy with God, right? So there was, I had this deep trust that what was unfolding, even though it was super, super difficult, really, and really even painful on a physical level. But I knew in a deep way that there was a deep, that there was a real kind of intelligence. There was a divine intelligence to this process that was like way beyond me. And that like, I could either just surrender to this thing or try and resist it or try and fight it. And I just had enough trust that I allowed it. Like I, I, allowed it, I allowed it to happen. 
you know, it's a little bit nuts because there were things that were happening that were just, they did not fit in the worldview that I, that I had, you know, been coming from at all. Like what? Just for kicks. Give us an example. Well, like you mentioned, like going into body contortions and yeah. Contortions, yeah. Some of them that were, would be impossible to do. Like, <laughs> like, I, like I wouldn't have been able to do those poses. Yeah. Like if I had tried, right? Right. There were a lot of kind of paranormal experiences perception, like different kinds of paranormal, psychic and clairvoyant and astral kinds of experiences that were part of this. There was a spontaneous, what would I would now, you know, because I have a context for the Hindu tradition, spontaneous kind of pranayamic mm-hmm. or pranayama breathing practices, very, very intense. There was just altered perceptions of various kinds that, you know, I had no explanation for. Like a whole constellation of bizarre kinds of experiences. It's interesting that you went through all this without a teacher to sort of reassure you that it was okay. No, yeah, I know. I was really out on a limb. Like, I was in a way, like, I, I knew I was on an edge that... You know, maybe I was going crazy. Maybe I I really didn't know exactly what was happening. Other than I knew that that my intention was was very sincere. And that I felt this presence there with me. And that presence was my teacher. That was my guide. That was my reference point for some kind of an inner stability and connection that I trusted uh, deeply enough. In some sense, I felt like everything that was happening, I knew on some level was part of this benevolent process of opening, even though my whole rational, like conditioned right self was kind of going bonkers. Did you feel that the presence had a sentience to it, such that, you know, almost as if a guardian angel kind of thing, or I'm just using that as a convenient term, but that there was, that you were sort of being looked after by a compassionate or well-meaning guide of some kind? It did not feel like a sentient being and that, like a, an entity, it didn't feel like that. It felt like it was... But the vastness had a sentience to yes, it. Yes, yes. Yes, vastness okay, has a chance to it, yes. Yeah, I like that. Because sometimes vastness or absolute or whatever is portrayed as like a rock, you know, dumb, <laughs> just being, you know, without any sort of intelligence inherent in it. But what you were describing and what I think many people experience is that it's there may be some level of it that's that, that way, but there's profound intelligence permeating and orchestrating everything. Yes, Yes, and that is, uh, I cannot find any part of me that has any doubt about the intelligent, the, you could say the divine intelligence that's guiding, that is, that is animating our human experience. Nice, I like that. It's as real, it's more real to me, from my vantage point, than anything in the usual conventional human realm. Do you want to continue or you want me to ask a question or, or read a bit more from your book? 
I'll say that about that experience that you described, that that experience was in a sense a, a culmination, if you will, of this phase of these spontaneous purification, what I call purification kinds of events that you know one could position as a kind of Kundalini type process. And it culminated in, in this burnout, you could say, <laughs> what felt like a, uh, a burnout. And it really changed my perception in a radical way. It's what initiated for the first time, I would say, really initiated a non-dual type of experience, which, you know, the former kind of experience of the divine presence was really one of uh, union. It was felt like communion and union with God. Like I was becoming more and more unified with this presence. This presence was in me. I was in it. It was like where I ended and this presence began, started becoming blurred. And it was like this presence of divine sweetness and and purity and love. But with this burnout experience, it was like everything was erased. And not only was the conventional sense of self erased, like any sense of being a, a person with a history or thoughts, all of that was just totally, but also this sense of a self in union with God was also erased. So it was like everything was annihilated, including God, right? Including this sort of presence that I had come to become like, in some sense, a wed to. So there was just like, not, and all that was left was just a sense of just, clear perception you could say there was just awareness but there was no location to the awareness it wasn't like i was perceiving reality it was like just reality was perceiving was aware of itself and there was no demarcations or uh, divisions in perception which was a <laughs> like a, you know up until that point things were wacky but this was like there wasn't even any way to process this because there was no one to process it. So I would say that began, you know, this second phase, what I call the annihilation phase, <laughs> which was the annihilation of self. There was certainly nothing in the Jewish tradition that I had known at that point that could explain this occurrence. And I had not studied Buddhist or Hindu texts at that point. So it was like, for a while, I thought maybe I died. <laughs> like, and that, that's what happened after you die. Like, uh, that was a serious consideration. Interesting. Of <laughs> course, you, you've now discovered that there are things in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions that yes, describe this. Yeah, there are. Yeah, um, that, that was very, very helpful for me, actually, at that time. After this happened, and I started to look for explanations and I came across these, you know, Buddhist and Hindu teachings. They were super, super helpful in terms of understanding more of what, what was happening. Yeah. Now, it seems that, you know, the next step was that, you know, you just said, have I died? There's absolutely no one here. There's just, a, you know, reality perceiving itself. But then you said, what I realized was that while there was no self in any conventional sense, there was still a location from which perception was occurring. There was also a reflective mechanism that was operating. That is, there was something that was able to reflect on the experience of not having a self. 
it was possible to discern a very subtle presence of it being self at the very center of things. Yes. Yeah, so at first, when it first occurred, there was, not, there was nothing. There was no location. There was no present self. There was, it was just like total absence. And then as I kind of, <laughs> kind of settled into that, you know, for lack of a better word, or like there was a sense of, okay, accepting it in some sense, then I started to explore more of this phenomenon there's actually more subtlety to this whole thing. I don't know how much we want to get into it. Oh, get into it. Go ahead. So you mentioned, I'll mention it because you mentioned the, this, the passage where I talk about the black fire. The black fire is actually important because before there was just the vastness of you know, non-dual space, there was a sense of deepening into a black void you could say. And this was where I mentioned the journey of silence earlier. I call it the journey of silence in the book, which was a deepening into deeper and deeper states of inner silence. And that deeper states of inner silence was really had a quality of dropping into a black hole. that was just getting more and more silent and more and more kind of deep. And this fire was of this black hole Quality. It had like that. It was like the, the presence of deep absence, but as a as a force, as a fire, and that is what like I actually felt it viscerally through my body, like actually like burn through my body, and burn through my consciousness, burn through my mind, my heart, and then there was just like a sense of just like going into just black unconscious space like vast deep <laughs> black nothing was this in an inner meditative condition or was it actually while you were eating breakfast and it was happening all the time no this happened during a meditation okay yeah it was a kabbalistic uh i was wondering if whether you're still able to function while this was going on <laughs> <laughs> at the height of the experience i was meditating i had my eyes closed i felt like i was like I had kind of gone gone blank, you know. I that was the sense I gone kaput, and then I I came to at some point, and then when I came to, and I opened my eyes, everything was that non-dual. Before the perception of just pure, you could say awareness, there was this black annihilation. There was the black annihilation fire, a sense of just being completely annihilated in black space, going kaput, as you say. And then after <laughs> kaput, open my eyes. And, and then there was a sense of just kind of like 360 awareness without a location. And it was like that for some time. But perception was very, very vivid and permeable. So like I could see through things, you know, like that was sort of the, the way, it's hard to describe it. Everything looked transparent. There was this sense that you could actually see through things and that things, objects don't exist the way we conventionally perceive them to exist. It was like this magical reality where nothing is actually solid. 
and there's not really a, a location of perception in the usual sense. It's just you are that everything that is transparent. So there was that phase. And then the next phase was, was what you're describing now. So this, um, this kind of beginning to contemplate from this place of what is this? Who, you know, who is the one that's perceiving this? Who is having this experience of non-dual perception? That was then when this start of point of light started to appear at the center of everything. And what I realized was that this point of light that appears at the center of everything, which, which I recognized as this is me, right? this is actually my soul spark. This is the original point of my consciousness. This is me in its, most, in its primordial state of, of existence, not existence in the usual sense, but in its eternal existence. Is that what you're referring to as starlight in your book? Yes, exactly. Here's a little passage. He said, starlight is the first light. It is the original primordial light of creation. It has that non-dual quality to it, formless, dimensionless, timeless. And yet, when the primordial point, the star, displays itself more distinctly, it carries an implicit sense of I. There's a sense that I am this light because it is the first light of the individual soul. It is the seed of the soul the soul spark. Yeah, exactly. This point of light, this starlight, can manifest as as a, as you just read, as either a distinct star, light shining in the vastness of space, but a clear sense of eternality. Like that's that's the mark of it, is that it doesn't feel like it was ever born or will ever die. If there's a distinct sense that this eternally abides. This is an eternally abiding light that is pre-existence, pre-creation. And this is the, the primordial uh, star. But then we can also experience this as just the light, just the starlight without a star. And now what I realized was this state of just non-dual vastness of a being that I first sort of realized when I came out of this black fire it's just starlight. Like everything is kind of shi- is kind of <laughs> scintillating, transparent scintillation of pure awareness as reality. You know, without a particular location, without a particular center, or the starlight can kind of crystallize into a particular form, to a particular spark of light which then gives a sense of there being a center to the self. But it's not the ordinary self like that we usually think of. As, it's not a thinking self. It's a being self. It's, it's a self that is of being. It's being manifesting as a first spark of itself, as a first spark of a, of a something that we can call an individual consciousness. So that's the discrimination between the starlight and the star. And they're, they're both of the same nature. They're just different manifestations of it. Hmm. You're doing a really good job of describing something that's really hard to describe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know how the Genesis says, let there be light, and, and there was light. And in the Vedic tradition, or at least some aspects of it, and perhaps some other traditions, they understand that the subtlest realm of creation is light. It's called the celestial field. 
and there are beings which dwell there with, who have celestial bodies, who live in celestial homes, and the whole thing is just fabricated of light. And then things get more concrete and more manifest from there. But many people do kind of experience that realm. Not many, but people do experience that realm. I have something else I want to ask you about light, but maybe you want to comment on that before I go on. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Uh, and it wasn't until after all that I had all these experiences um, that I went back to these Kabbalistic texts and then understood that these what, I'm, what, what my experiences were were also known and, and sort of described in these metaphysical terms in the Kabbalistic system. So uh, just like in the Hindu tradition, right, as you're sharing, there's an understanding of the primordial sort of light of creation. Haranya Garba, it's called the golden egg of, of, of creation. Yes, that's beautiful. Yeah. There's a... Uh, in Kabbalah, and a lot of what I do in, in this book, really most of the book doesn't talk about my experiences, as you know, right? It's mostly... I know, we're just, just of, uh, <laughs> squeezing that out of you. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's a good exercise to, uh, to, uh, to speak to the experiential source of, of actually these teachings, right? Because the, the Kaduma teachings that I uh, articulate in the book are they're really what they're just showing they're they're articulating the they're mapping out these experiences in a way that can be utilized can be retrofitted perhaps or uh, replicated or duplicated through practice by people and what i found is that in the kabbalah tradition and the jewish tradition there is an understanding of these processes it's just that the way the texts are written Unless a person has some sense of the experience, it would be almost impossible to understand what they're talking about. <laughs> right. So what happens is that, is that people read these texts and then it's just mental, you know, like it just becomes like this intellectual exercise, which is the way that, that I ha- had uh, encountered it prior to these experiences. And almost all, if not all of the Kabbalistic kind of teachers that I had, you know, encountered were... Um, know, coming at it from the outside in, right? So they read the text and then they try and like, try and understand the experience from the text. My experience was inside out. Like I had, you know, I had no idea, like I wasn't looking for any of this stuff to happen. I I had no map. I I had no, and none of this stuff would have made any sense from what I had read, you know? And it was only later on I, I studied more deeply and, and I, and I saw, oh, wow, they're actually describing, they're describing these primordial processes that I had become intimate with in my own experience, but had no framework, certainly not in Judaism, for at that time. And yet, what I discovered is that the framework is there. It just has to be understood properly. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to ask you another question about light, but the thought that just popped into my head when you said that is that, you know, you could help actually be instrumental in um, helping to bring about a sort of a renaissance or a rediscovery of the true meaning of or the inner meaning of all these things. I mean, you could write a commentary on certain 
scriptures, you know, saying, here's what they said, and here's the experience they were actually referring to, you know, and, and then here's another thing, and here's that experience, without, you know, tuning your own horn too much. But um, obviously, these guys wrote this stuff down because they considered these experiences significant and, and worth writing about. Um, and it's kind of a shame if they're completely not understood or misinterpreted. There may be a coming generation which would find this extremely useful because my feeling is that more and more people are going to sort of be awakening experientially, and they already are. And um, many people are doing their best to um, glean you know, meaning from ancient scriptures. But as we started this whole discussion an hour ago, those have very often been misinterpreted or mistranslated and, and you know, become rather obscure. So either we need to write new ones or we need to sort of find out what the old ones were actually talking about. Yeah, totally. You read my mind because uh, it's on my list of projects to work on a commentary on uh, on the Torah that that actually explains it more experientially. Yeah, that's great. While we're on the topic of light, you said something that I found very interesting. You said, when we enter this dimension of light, it can open up the channel of divine oils. It is possible to actually experience an, an ethereal oil descending from the top of the head down the whole body. This seems similar to the teachings on Amrita in the Vajrayana tradition. Some texts describe this deathless ambrosia in similar ways, flowing down the body from the crown of the head. There's also um, in the Vedic tradition the, the notion of soma, the ninth mandala of the Rig Veda is all about soma, and there's stuff about it in Ayurveda and so on. And it's often thought to be some kind of plant that you could find in the Himalayas and you could grind it up and use it. But um, And maybe it is that also. But there's a whole explanation of how the body produces it when it becomes refined enough. So the most refined products of digestion or or the whole metabolic process end up fabricating or or creating soma, which then has a a further refining influence on the whole nervous system and on perception. Yeah, that makes total sense experientially uh, for me and what's happening. When you experienced it from coming from the top of the head, was it as if someone had poured oil on the top of your head and there was this sort of blissful cascade coming down like that? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It was like a sense of being anointed. Right. Of being anointed with oil. It's very, very visceral. Like you actually feel as if there is a substance. Yeah. It's like running down your face and down the running side. down your face, <laughs> and then your whole body, right? But but down the head and face, it's very very distinct. It's an ethereal presence, you know, that can feel like oil. And you mentioned soma, and you know, sort of the, the inner metabolism of, and of how this process occurs in the Kabbalah tradition. This is correlated with the messianic condition, like the Messiah. Uh, the messianic state is correlated with the experience of of anointing with oil because this English word Messiah is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which appears in the Hebrew Bible to refer to one who is anointed with oil. That's actually what the word means. Messiah is one who is anointed. So in the Hebrew Bible, when it refers to a Mashiach, it's referring to a king or maybe to a priest as well. 
because there was a coronation ceremony where they were anointed with oil. So they're one who's anointed with oil. So uh, in the Kabbalah tradition, the messianic condition is part of our nature. Like each one of us is, you know, a messiah and drag, so to speak. We have this inner potential for being anointed by the inner oil, by the ethereal divine oil. Um, and it's part of connecting to this starlight dimension, in my experience, at least, at, at, at any rate, right? It could be other people have uh, a different process in which this plays out. In my experience, it was when I connected to that state that this uh, ethereal oil, I have that sense of that anointing. It's, and, it, and it was part of the transformation of of perception and of consciousness, because the result of the of the of the oil was commensurate with this opening up, this radical kind of opening up of perception into like non-localized kind of you know uh, pure awareness. Um, so I think that we need to also revision this whole concept of the Messiah and move away, in a sense from looking to one person as sort of embodying the, the Messiah potential and in a sense really reclaim our collective potential for each of us to, to know ourselves in this deep way, to know ourselves in this primordial way as a living kind of, uh, you know, uh, king or queen of the divine. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say something like, you know, all these great things that I do, you shall do even greater things. Um, you know, he kind of said, Hey, you got this too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, regarding the oil thing, isn't there something in the 23rd Psalm thou anointest my head with oil. Isn't that one of the lines in the 23rd mm-hmm. Psalm? Yeah. I love that. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's perhaps another one of these, subjective experiences that gets externalized into ritual. So, you know, people describe this experience like you just described, and then some people who maybe weren't having the experience thought, hey, let's let's make this part of the tradition. We'll pour oil on people's heads. Yeah, no, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the way these things go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like the asanas and the shuckling and, right. and the anointing, like, you know, we... We, uh, we ritualize these inner processes in some sense, perhaps in a, as a way to, to domesticate them. Or maybe there's a value in them in that they're symbolic of a subjective experience, but perhaps people eventually forget the symbolism and take them too literally. Totally, yeah. I also find that ri- the rituals in general... Ritual can have powerful, uh, especially if rituals are, in some sense, the closer connected they, the closer they are to the original experience, uh, or you could say, the, the closer they are in spirit uh, and in genesis to those original experiences, they have the potential to, to, to in some sense, replicate the, the presence. You know, I think that's what draws people to ritual so much is that they actually feel something happening. They may not have all the language to articulate the subtleties of it, but it's like people feel 
can feel uh, these forces at play when they perform rituals. Yeah, and sometimes people want to just throw the whole thing out, you know, because they feel it's superficial. But as Thoreau said, he said, you know, you've built castles in the air. That's where they belong. Now build foundations under them. So we don't necessarily have to chuck all this this rich tradition, but it, it could be um, supplemented or substantiated by an experiential foundation. Okay, so we spent the first hour and 15 minutes <laughs> talking mostly about your experience, but we've, we've obviously um, gone off into various um, profound bits of knowledge. Is there anything more you want to say in this sort of chapter of the conversation? And actually, here's a good uh, segue point, perhaps, that might help us do that. And then we can get on to talking more about your book. A question came in from Tom in Chicago who asks, what is the color of light in this dimension? Does it gradually change colors or is it a constant color? I've heard the the color golden referring to this celestial light. But um, what do you have to say to Tom? Yeah, so are you referring to the starlight? I, I, I believe he's, we, we had that whole conversation about light and yeah. inner light and starlight and everything. I think he's asking, is there a color to it? I think this is a good segue because um, there's a whole, in the book, I talk about the colors actually uh, a bit. The starlight itself is, there is colorless. There, it's like color of starlight, <laughs> like, uh, it's a primordial, and this is the thing about the starlight is that I can legitimately use the word light to kind of point to it, even though there's no light to be seen. Like it's not a visible light in the in the usual sense, and even in the inner sense, it's the light prior to it coming through the prism. It's like the colorless light that is the essence of light. It's like. It well, is, the color, the light that goes into a prism is actually all the colors combined, but they end up, you know, being colorless when they're all combined. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly, that's, that's, the, that's really the perfect metaphor then, because it's like all the colors are implicit in the starlight. So it has this sense of like, uh, like potency. Yeah. You know, like there's a potency to it, even though there isn't a distinct color mm-hmm. to it. There's that sense of like, all of creation packed into this light, you know? Perfect, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then I mean, it, if, it's this, if it's the sort of primordial field from which creation arises, then obviously all the qualities and so-called colors of creation would have to be inherent within it. That's right, yeah, they're, they're implicit in it. And then as we come into formation and as we come into manifestation, as a particular individual consciousness, right? So I talked about the point of light, but this point of light births itself, you could say, through the human form, through the human being, um, into a more full embodied expression of this light. And it's through that coming into form, into incarnation, that this colorless uh, primordial uh, light begins to discriminate itself, begins to uh, express itself into the distinct colors of the uh, what we call, you know, what Kabbalah would call the sifirot or the or the divine qualities. These, are, which are the particular colors of light 
that uh, discriminate out of the colorless primordial light. It's like the colors of the rainbow. So all of the, the realm of manifestation, the world of appearances, the, the conventional world that we typically experience is constituted by various combinations of these colors, of these uh, discriminated light forms, each of which has a particular quality that can be experientially discerned through our, um, through our inner and outer experience, actually. And so these qualities of light, these divine qualities or qualities of being, or I call them the lights of being in the book, um, do have distinct colors to them. Um, and there's many of them, right? There's, 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 there's the golden light, the red light, the white light, the black light, the, you know, the green light. And they're more like kind of hues or, you know, they're subtle frequencies of light, you could say, that can be experienced and known through our human organism in everyday life. So in some sense, they, are the, they, they serve as the typical portals to the primordial light because they're usually much more accessible to our human experience. Um, and each one of these lights has its own teaching. And, you know, in the Kaduma sort of path, we, we work uh, with uh, our experience in a way that brings forward and clarifies these particular uh, lights. But the primordial light itself, is not a particular color in my experience. It's more of that colorless light prior to its coming through. Yeah, it hasn't diversified. Yeah. Yeah. There's a thing in physics called sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking where there's a perfectly symmetrical field at the foundation of everything and then it it sort of um, breaks into greater and greater diversity. And, uh, you know, various forces and matter fields come out and from there elements come out and the whole thing just sort of gets more and more manifest and diverse. Um, but it, it sort of mirrors what you're talking about. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, it fits. <laughs> but anyway, the, the basic concept I think we're talking about here is that there's, you know, this a fundamental field and it actually um, could be could be experienced to have the quality of light and that everything arises from that fundamental field appears to become material creation. Now you said that when you had that profound awakening, it was as if material creation was immaterial, that as if you could see through things, they, they seem to have no materiality, even though you could see their, um, their distinctions. Yes, that's right. Yeah. From the starlight condition, one mode of the starlight condition is transparency, the transparency of form. So there's more of a pure sense of formlessness that presents itself in this dimension of experience. There's an even more subtle kinds of variations of this. There's there's absence of formlessness also. I mean, there and there's like it's like you'd say different uh, gradations. Of, of formlessness itself that can present itself in that state. It's not like a static, we're getting into a lot of subtlety here, which is good. But in my experience, there's both a baseline of a non-changing formlessness. And it's also possible 
for there to be uh, a radical, intense kind of dynamism in that formlessness. And this can be confusing to, you know, to understand it from a conventional kind of mind state, because how can it be both sort of dynamic and changing and also totally unchanging and formless at the same time? And yet experientially, that's possible. Uh, no, and in reality, that's possible, both in terms of the certain ancient traditions like Tantra and also modern physics it's understood that there's this sort of infinite dynamism and silence simultaneously coexisting and that there's this kind of relationship between the two. We can talk more about it, but it's, uh, it's definitely um, both ancient and modern knowledge. Totally. I mean, it's, it really is the essence of what, you know, if I think, you know, the whole Shiva Shakti kind of, uh, unity and in Kabbalah it would be Yudhevave and Elohim or Yudhevave and Adonai, the sort of the feminine and the masculine principles of pure, unchanging being on the one hand, Shiva, you know, and then the dynamism of creation on the other, Shakti. Um, it's, it's a mistake uh, to understand those as two separate phenomena in the ultimate sense. The, re- the realization, at least in my experience, is that they actually are totally coexistent and interpenetrate. They're not two. It's like two sides of the same thing. You know? uh, and they simply are facets of one unity. Yeah, you talk a lot about in your book about expansion and contraction. And uh, I think those could be regarded as simultaneous. And there's an interesting explanation, which is that um, it's got, we could call it the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness, where consciousness in its sort of primordial state, because it's conscious, there's nothing for it to be conscious of other than itself. But it does that because its nature is to be conscious. But in doing that, it goes from one to three, the three being, you know, observer, observed, and process of observation. And yet, at the same time, it's one. And so this sort of infinite frequency gets set up between the one and the three, and that accounts for this infinite dynamism at the, at the foundation of everything. Yeah, it's beautiful. Makes sense. We could have started the interview with this, but let's start now, take a moment, just to define some basic terms, like um, what is Torah, what is um, Kabbalah, what is Kaduma? Um, it would be good, good to get familiar with the terminology a little bit for those who aren't. Yeah, Torah is a word, Hebrew word, means teaching. And it uh, conventionally, normative, you know, the normative use of that term refers to um, the Hebrew Bible um, or to the oral traditions of Judaism. Uh, however, uh, really the term traditionally, the, the word Torah, re- really refers to the totality of, of the teaching, right? Uh, not to a specific text. So it could include the Hebrew Bible. Sometimes people just use the word Torah to refer to the Hebrew Bible. But it's really used more similarly to the way the word Dharma is used in Buddhism. Dharma refers to the totality of the teaching, of the path, of the way, which includes the oral teachings includes the practices. It includes 
you know, uh, the innermost essence, so too Torah is a, is a word that points to all the dimensionalities of the teaching. Okay, good. And then um, how about Kabbalah? Uh, Kabbalah is a Hebrew word that means uh, receiving. Uh, to receive, Kabbalah. It's a term that's used to refer to the totality of the Jewish mystical tradition. There's a subtle distinction we can make in that scholars in the field of Jewish thought who study Jewish mysticism will position Kabbalah as a, as a particular school within the Jewish mystical tradition. However, the word Kabbalah in the traditional framework is used to just refer to the totality of the Jewish mystical tradition, including all of its various historical manifestations. Okay, good. And then until I met you, I had never heard the word Kaduma. Um, so what, <laughs> what is that? Well, you're, you're not the only one. Uh, no one's ever heard of the word Kaduma. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Kaduma is not a word that appears in the tradition. Well, it does appear in the tradition, actually. I'll explain uh, where it appears. But it's, it's a word that is not, you know, I, I mean, I made it up in the sense that, oh, okay. <laughs> that I, I, well, I should say I've adopted it. Right. You found uh, it someplace and you thought it was a good word to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I say it appeared to me in meditation. Uh, as a, as a term that represents that points to the, the this teaching that that I began to teach, right? So, kaduma itself is a word that means primordial, and it, it appears in an ancient Hebrew text that talks about um, this principle of there being a Torah kaduma, a primordial Torah that existed before the creation of the world. And so the, so the teaching goes that the, the Holy One, uh, you know, kind of uh, gazes into this Torah or consults this Torah and then creates the world. So he's talking about some kind of a primordial uh, blueprint of creation. Right? Ah, so, ah. so that's kind of what the Veda is thought to be also in that tradition is, is kind of this, blueprint of creation which contains all the laws of nature and then which can be kind of xeroxed whenever a new creation needs to arise <laughs> yeah exactly that, that, that's, that fits this so um so this word sort of points to this primordial uh reality prior to creation and when after I had, you know, had all these experiences and went through a, a decade of integration, <laughs> right, of all of it. And uh, this teaching, this path and teaching and understanding of Torah, now Torah in the larger sense of Torah, not Torah as like some religious teaching, right? The, the totality like a, of knowledge. Yeah, the Dharma, right, this Dharmic teaching or this Torah teaching. Uh, started to present itself through me, and I started to teach it. And the first time I taught it was five years ago uh, when I gave this first series of 11 uh, teachings, which formed the basis for this book that, that you you know shared, the Kaduma experience. When you say it, it presented itself through you, did you sort of feel like kind of a 
an inner prompting that you just had to expound this stuff and that you, you almost, you almost felt like you weren't the originator of it. It was just sort of, you were the channel for it maybe. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. It was like that. Um, and so the, this first series of talks that form the, you know, that basically are the transcripts for this book was the first time that I had taught this teaching that I call that I called the Kaduma teachings. I call them the Kaduma teachings because when uh, this teaching sort of revealed itself to me, that was the the name that it had. Like that, it it presented itself as the teachings of the of the Torah Kaduma, the primordial Torah, the Torah before the creation of the world. So uh, I use this term Kaduma. So the reason why you've never heard of it and nobody's ever heard of it is because it's a very obscure word. It's not a word that's used in the tradition at all. I'm kind of reviving it and, and claiming it as, a, as an esoteric uh, principle that I feel is important to reconnect to in our time, which is really about reconnecting to the primordial spirit, uh, not just of this tradition, not just of Judaism, right? Because Kaduma is, is not about Judaism. It's not about any particular religion or any particular tribe or anything like that. Kaduma is, is really a trans-religious approach uh, that is about uh, supporting humanity, supporting the planet to reconnect to its primordial source, its primordial nature um, because it's through connection, reconnection, remembering of ourselves in this, in our eternal nature that first of all, it brings a tremendous amount of like freedom and from suffering and all that. There's some side benefits, but it also um, it's through that connection that we have the possibility of you could say, uh, reformatting our human collective experience on this planet going forward. Mm, nice. Take as much time as you want now to kind of summarize what you're offering here. I won't interrupt you unless I feel at some point that might need clarification. I want you to have a chance to really expound um, what it is that you're offering. You've told us in a nutshell, but I'm sure it can use some elaboration. Yeah, I've I've shared the essence of it, which is really about reconnecting to ourselves this way, remembering ourselves. Yeah, so if a person gets to be a serious student of this, what are they going to be studying? What are they going to be practicing? You know, um, what, what would they learn if they read this book? That kind of thing. So there's a number of fundamental uh, points in terms of what, what this Kaduma path is about. Because there's many, many teachings out there, as we know, many paths, many approaches, many practices, uh, some ancient, some uh, more contemporary. Kaduma is both ancient and new. That is to say, it's roots itself, links itself to an ancient lineage. Uh, I experience it as an inner lineage, a lineage that is not through flesh and blood, uh, through time and space. 
exactly, but uh, it's kind of a, an inner wisdom stream that reveals itself in human in human form and through human community at various uh, times and places. And so many traditions have uh, expressions of Kaduma, you could say, within them and have kind of um, articulated a pathway to our primordial uh, nature, to our innermost essence. In our time, this is why I say it's both ancient and new, our time has particular challenges to it. We, uh, in terms of what we're working with, both just in the outer world and also in the invisible forces at play. And so Kaduma, the Kaduma path articulates a very simple kind of five step or five journey. I call them the five journeys in the book. Um, five dimensions of our experience that at any point in time we can, uh, we can use as a map of our experience, both of the territory we're in, but also as a, a way to deepen and understand ourselves more fully all the way back to our primordial source and even to even more subtle dimensions of freedom that I articulate in the book than what we've discussed so far. Are so, those five journeys like alternate routes or do we take all five? Well, they, the five journeys are more five dimensions of freedom that are not, they can be experienced line, in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. Sequentially. Sequentially, yes. Um, or not, they can be non-linearly experienced, but they're really just, dimensions of our experience at any moment in time that are possible for us to connect to. Most people are dominantly uh, familiar with the first journey, what I call the journey of contraction. Contraction is the normative state of identifying with being a separate self and having all kinds of, you know, um, contractions in our system in response to our everyday experience, right? Reactions of various kinds, disturbances, uh, mostly due to identifying with the, the narrative or surface layer of our experience, our thinking mind and its historical conditioning. So this dimension of our experience, what I call the journey of contraction, is akin to, I use this metaphor in the book, it's like the narrative layer of of a scroll. If you take a, you know, a sacred scroll and you read the text, you use like the Torah as an example, right? The Hebrew Bible. Many people, they read the Hebrew Bible and they read it on a level of stories. Like these are stories about people and history. That's the narrative level. That's the level of contraction, actually. That's not the real sort of understanding of the meaning of, of the text, nor of, of reality. So usually we, our experience of our life day to day is one that is imprisoned in uh, an identification with the stories that are historically derived, you know, 
So that's, that's the usual experience. Uh, most spiritual traditions have some kind of, uh, of a technology or path out of contraction. Right? And so most spiritual awakening paths are about how to become free from, from contraction. So in Kaduma, we talk about the journey of expansion, which is the second journey. And the journey of expansion is the is when we are able to work with our experience of contraction and work with it skillfully. And so we do that through various kinds of practices that are embodied practices of working with the material of our contraction as opposed to bypassing it and sort of ejecting into some non-dual state. We really work to stay present with and understand the nature of our contraction. And what we discover when we do that is that inside, at the heart of every experience, is the primordial light of freedom, of expansion. And so we just have simple practices that we learn and that we work with to help us connect to the spirit of expansion that is available to us through any experience in our daily life. So in that sense, contraction and expansion go hand in hand. And in fact, you can't have one without the other. Contraction only makes sense in relationship to expansion and vice versa. So it's a mistake to think that the goal is to just sort of get rid of contraction and and experience expansion all the time. (laughs) Because that just leads us into a different kind of suffering. It's a more subtle kind of suffering but it's a suffering uh, nonetheless because we're setting up a sort of split in our experience and we become just attached to expansion, the expense of contraction. Yeah, also the world works in boundaries and specificities and so on. I mean, you know, try landing a uh, Boeing 747 in a snowstorm without being very focused and contracted on, on specific details that you need to, to uh, attend to. And you bring up a very good uh, point, which is a fundamental principle that we work with in Kaduma, which is the the relationship between contraction and concentration. Right? Uh, in Kabbalah, there's this term simsum, which means uh, it means to concentrate uh, or or to contract uh, as well, actually. Um, and it's actually through contraction of energy, of presence, of awareness that it can become super super concentrated and through the super hyper focused of our awareness and our uh, presence what we start to experience is actually more and more spaciousness at the heart of that concentration which this is how how concentration meditation practices work actually Um, so yeah, I would also, say that that airline pilot could be experiencing an, uh, an inner vastness and an inner freedom while at the same time focusing very precisely and sharply on the task at hand. Yeah, exactly. And so with our contracted experience in life, oftentimes we are, because we're lost in the narratives and the storylines with it and the identities, you know, the self-dramas related to the experience of contraction, we we have forgotten how to use the experience of contraction as a doorway into uh, the inclusion of, of the spaciousness 
and freedom of, of expansion. And so we really work to capitalize on all of our everyday experiences as, as doorways and portals to more of the fullness, the full spectrum of who and what we are. So we're really approaching it not as an inclusive approach to our experience where we're not trying to get rid of our contraction or somehow fix it or alter it or change it. We're really learning uh, how to more fully embrace the totality of our experience, including our contractions, as expressions of the totality of reality, uh, equally valid as our experiences of, of expansion. And this inclusion, inclusivity, brings in more of the potential for the third journey, which is the journey of wholeness. The journey of wholeness is really the integration of the journeys of expansion and contraction into a more full embodied totality of our human experience that uh, is able to hold all the dimensionality of our everyday life and also embraces more of the, uh, the full horizontal dimensionality of our journey, which includes the relational and the functional dimensions of our experience. So without wholeness, we have this problem that we see in the spiritual communities today, especially in spiritual communities or spiritual paths that tend to um, emphasize expansion without really understanding or processing or digesting the content of our contracted experience. So we have this phenomenon where it's possible for us to do certain practices and kind of stay in this somewhat removed state of non-dual experience somewhat disembodied somewhat disembodied and then you know relationships are kind of a disaster and like people our behaviors are kind of out of whack yeah and you're not making a living and you know you're just not dealing with the world yeah exactly that's just like total expansion without the inclusion of contract without the harmonization and integration and digestion metabolizing of of the contents of our experience and of our personal history and all of that. And so wholeness really represents, you know, there's this phrase in the Talmud that says, full human being is tocho kavaro, is the Aramaic word phrase, which means the inside is like the outside. Now the inside is like the outside. And so on the journey of wholeness, we're really working with integrating the inside and the outside so that our external life, our, the outer world, becomes a true reflection of an expression of our inner realization, tocho uh, kavaro. And that's the realization of wholeness in our experience, which is a, a different kind of realization. It's actually more mature, uh, more full, more real, more human, and human at the same time, divine. Yeah. It's like I mean, on, on earth as it is in heaven, what that means to me is that the inner divine quality has been sort of suffused into the outer world through our interaction with the outer world and our living realistically with the outer world such that the outer world becomes, is, is elevated in all of its uh, functions, all of its forms. Yeah. So that was three of the journeys. Yeah, so there's the journey of wholeness, and then we have the journey of vastness, which deals more with the primordial light that I described already. So the journey of vastness 
it's a different kind of expansion. So in the journey of expansion, we're still experiencing expansion relative to contraction. So there's more of that sense of we feel free from the contraction, but we still experience ourselves as a, as a kind of individual self that's feeling expanded. And we can have that sense of expansion through the body, more spaciousness. But in the journey of vastness, it's a, it's a radically different kind of, of expansion because it's really the erasure of, the, of all self, of all sense of, of self altogether. So it's, not, it's no longer expansion relative to contraction. It's more moving into that more primordial state of, of eternal uh, vastness of being, which um, you could say ushers in uh, a different set of realizations and understandings about the nature of who we are and of reality. And so the journey of vastness represents that, that dimension of, of, of the journey. Um, and there's, there's various phases, there's various subtleties to the journey of vastness. There's the, as I mentioned, there's like the black, you know, kind of space of uh, kaput, you know, the void. And there's the starlight, there's the star, there's, and then there's also, um, there's also a more radical kind of emptiness that can appear in the journey of, of vastness. That's, that's not just the emptiness of self, but it's like, the emptiness of of all, um, and this is again where words fail, fail, fail us, because it's even to say emptiness is not a good term. It's saying too much. Uh, it's it's brings in more of a state or a mode of experience in which. The categories of empty and full no longer apply. That there, there's no longer an inside or an outside. There's no longer a fullness or a vastness. There's no longer presence or absence. It's like there's just a, a complete and utter, you could say, um, divestment of all charge in experience. This moves into the, the fifth journey, the journey of freedom, which in a sense brings in a different kind of realization, which is the realization of a certain kind of radical equanimity or the Zen tradition talks about the one taste state where there is no longer a value preference for states of realization or states of contraction. It's, it's like a more radical kind of mode of uh, freedom from all concept, from all concept, even from the concept of freedom. And this uh, journey of freedom is marked, in a sense, by the dissolution of all hierarchy, dissolution of all value preference. Not the dissolution of all preference. It's just preferences that become simple, just like life becomes radically simple in the journey of freedom. The journey of freedom it's, it marks also the, the, the end of the journey, the end of the, the spiritual journey. Not that the journey doesn't continue to unfold with learning and, and understanding and, and life experience and all of that. 
it's like the end of the journey in the sense that the uh, the uh, the there's such such a complete and radical contentment with the what is right in front of our face, even the most mundane kind of thing, that there's no longer the impulse to seek anything other than exactly where we are in any given moment, regardless of how ordinary and mundane it is. And so it's like the the radicalization of the mundane and the ordinary as the ultimate. There is no longer a kind of ultimate that we seek because the ultimate is where whatever appears in our experience. That's that's what I mean by the divestment of all psychic energy in the experience and the equalization of all value to experience in terms of preference. That there's like a a an arriving at a radical kind of simplicity where everything is uh, collapsed into whatever the immediate sense perception is before us. And so that brings a certain, a different kind of freedom than the freedom of vastness and the freedom of wholeness and the freedom of expansion and even the freedom of contraction. That's why I say the five journeys are really all different dimensions of freedom. The journey of freedom is a particular kind of freedom. It's the freedom to be with whatever experience we have without, it's like the erasure of the impulse to be anywhere else. It's, so there's a, and that brings in a whole other kind of, now each of these journeys, I'm like summing them up quickly, right? each of these journeys is a whole teaching and has, you know, a whole set of <laughs> sort of subtleties and understanding to it. Um, but what I'm saying so far is this kind of, make how is this landing or making sense? Oh, it makes sense. As you traverse each journey and then move on to the next one, do you, abandon the previous one or do you kind of incorporate it and then add the next one to it even though i'm presenting them in a kind of they're simultaneous yeah these are really all always already present yes and at any moment we can be in any one it's really like just a way of situating where we are yeah so maybe according to the circumstances you would one or the other would predominate yeah. Now we do have a formal curriculum where we teach them progressively. Right. Uh, but that's more uh, for pedagogical reasons, you know, as a way, it's a more efficient way of learning. And, and there is for many people, a natural progression. Um, however, we're always, we're always cycling and circling uh, and spiraling back and forward through all the journeys at any moment in time. So we can be studying things in, that pertain to the journey of freedom or to the journey of vastness, but we're always practicing, you know, skills that relate to the journey of wholeness, which has to do with, you know, uh, aligned and skillful relating and functioning. We're always working with issues around contraction because every day brings new kind of react reactions that we have to understand about ourselves. And um, so there's, you know, regardless of, and this is why at the very beginning of this, you know, conversation, when we talked about sharing, you know, personal experiences, 
because of the perspective of the journey of freedom that we hold in Kaduma and that I personally hold, um, there really isn't a value preference for uh, having an experience of contraction vis-a-vis an experience of radical awakening. Um, They each are real and true expressions of, of reality that are they have their value they have their relevance yes but i think what people find is that contraction is no longer binding as it once was that you know in the midst of what may appear to be contraction there's an inner freedom which makes the contraction a whole lot more tolerable if not enjoyable that's exactly right yeah so without the journeys of expansion and the other you know the other journeys it would be very very difficult if not impossible to really work with contracted experience we need to have the perspective of the other journeys in a sense in order to most efficiently work with to understand the nature of contraction to see contraction as a as a manifestation of uh, spirit yeah when you say we're studying this and you're teaching this and so on do you mean students at Naropa university are studying it and teaching it, or is it? Can it be studied in some other context? Uh, no, at uh, the Kaduma in the Kaduma school that I run. Oh, okay. Where Which is teach- ind- independent of Naropa. Yes, that's right. I yeah. see. Is that an yeah. online thing, or is it in Boulder? Yeah. We have um, we have online programs. We have in person retreat. Uh, Programs we've been meeting in Boulder. It's still, you know, we're still in our early years. Um, but yeah, we have workshop. We have uh, we have a retreat program called the Soulship, where we um, we have a, it's like a, a multi-year curriculum of teachings that uh, you know we have people that have gone through the whole thing, and you know we have people who are now training to support others in this path. So it's Kaduma is both a um, it's like a, a principle of reality, you know, this primordial principle. That's, and then it's also a, a formal kind of teaching and path that whoever someone resonates with it, there there are opportunities to actually experience it. You know, so if you go to the website kaduma.org, they have all those programs there you could check out and see. Okay, great. I'll be linking to all that. So um, uh, some questions came in that I want to take time to ask and have you answer. And we'll jump around a little bit because they're questions on different things, but that's okay. You ready for that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So firstly, there's a couple of questions about light that we were talking about. Um, Dan from London asks, does this description of light relate to the regular light we experience? It seems that when the light of the sun illuminates the world, the light itself is mostly colorless and is not detectable or perceivable in and of itself, but generally only by the illumination of objects. We can find the source, the sun, and we can notice the light rays through clouds. So I guess we're talking about this description of light. Maybe let me try to summarize this question. The the light that you were talking about, which is sort of like subtle field of, of relative creation, celestial light, does that in any way relate to the more obvious 
light that we see uh, with our eyes, which is actually just a tiny fraction of the elect- uh, spectrum of the electromagnetic field. Well, some, in some Kabbalistic texts, they actually use the, the metaphor of the sun and the rays of light to, um, to point to it. So I think it's helpful as a metaphor, as a metaphor, as a metaphor. Um, and to some extent, perhaps it's also a literal metaphor in the sense that, you know, the physical world, including the sun and the ray and and the light that emanates from the sun and all the processes at play that you know, that reveal the light to us. They are in some sense an expression of like all things in the physical realm and in the human realm are expressions and emanations of this primordial light. So they, they still carry the vibrations and the frequencies of this primordial light. And so, yeah, so the invisible light of the sun that we usually don't see with our ordinary eye, I think is both an apt metaphor and also in some sense, perhaps a literal metaphor. It really is an expression of that light itself in terms of the vibrations of it. Another question on light from Tom again in Chicago. Does each color of light have a a special healing power or capability? Yes. Each, each color of light has a specific function, both in the inner life and in the outer world. So, for example, the, the light of compassion is very healing in terms of our own inner wounds. Uh, it can feel like we're being bathed in, a loving, in the light of loving kindness. That is incredibly healing to experience. And the light, the function of the lights is to serve as a bridge between the primordial pre-existent, pre-existence reality and the realm of forms, the realm of manifestation. And so every light serves as a bridge from the inner to the outer, and such it serves as a, an inner light of healing. But it also functions as a way for us to communicate that loving kindness and that compassion to others in the world. That's interesting. That notion of a bridge, there's a saying in Sanskrit, I forget the, the Sanskrit, but it's the lamp at the door, as if there's a, a lamp or a light at the interface between the, let's say, the inside and the outside, or the unmanifest and the manifest. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I'll, and I'll add to that, there's a verse in the book of Proverbs, Kiner Hashem Nishmat Adam Chofes Kol Vatan, that's the Hebrew, uh, for it means... For the, uh, the light of being is the soul of the human. Yes, nice. And so the, the human soul, so the human consciousness, is a light. Right? It's, uh, and it is the light of being. It is the interface from primordial light of being to, the man- to the, all the manifest forms of light that make up the world of appearances. And we as human beings, in some sense, are that lamp at the door, right? We, we are that interface. And the human being is uniquely situated in the sense that we have uh, access to the primordial, we are vehicles of the primordial light, the purity of the primordial light, into the realm of form. Into the realm of form, yeah. We could say that all animals and beings of any sort, from amoebas to 
humans or whatever, are conduits for the light of being. But the human, as you just said, is uniquely qualified to straddle the whole realm of create the whole range of creation in his awareness to appreciate the whole thing from the unmanifest through all realms of manifestation to the the most contracted yeah i don't know for sure if we're the only creatures that have that capacity but yeah i mean maybe whales and dolphins or something like that but yeah, but certainly the traditional texts, uh, at least in Kabbalah, position the human being as uniquely situated in that way. Yeah, um, and it does seem that we ha- that we, you know, uh, you know, but who you know who knows? <laughs> yeah, and I would say that my, I would conjecture that given the vastness of the universe and the, the probability of the life on trillions of planets that were probably rather stunted little slugs by comparison <laughs> with what's possible. <laughs> well, that's, for sure, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Here's another question for you. This is the one that came in earlier from Peter Livingston in Quincy, California. Do reincarnation and karma play a role in your system? Yeah, so there is, there is a, um, a rich tradition of reincarnation in Kabbalah. And there is a, a, an equivalent to karma. It's not exactly the same, actually, but um, there, there is... Um, As you sow, so shall you reap. Yeah, yeah. And there's, in Hebrew, it's midah, connected midah. There's a, a phrase in the oral tradition that, you know, measure, there's a measure for every other measure, yeah. So there's a kind of, there's this concept that everything we do has some kind of consequence in the fabric of reality, right? There's a ripple effect of every action and even every word that we utter. So, and one could even say every thought, every thought, yeah. So, uh, so yes, we we have an understanding of 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 that, and that's why the journey of wholeness is so important. The journey of wholeness, which deals with integrating our speech and our action. <laughs> with our realization, because it's not enough to just realize the truth of reality or or some, you know, state of vastness. But without really manifesting that through our speech behavior and incarnate form of consciousness, then uh, we can be still causing quite a bit of harm to each other and to the planet and to ourselves. And then also in reincarnation, uh, I want to make a distinction between Kabbalah and Kadumak. You know, Kabbalah is, a, is the traditional teachings of the esoteric dimension of Judaism that have a rich tradition of reincarnation. And actually, I have a, a new book that's coming out that deals with esoteric, um, that, de- that translates some of the mystical Kabbalistic meditation practices that, that work with reincarnation. In the 16th century, there was a, a Kabbalistic, there was a series of Kabbalistic teachers and texts that have a, a kind of elaborate system of meditation for how to expedite the journey of rebirth, so that we don't have to come back. So you can like do these meditation practices as you're going to sleep at night, and this helps, you know, the journey of reincarnation. So there is a rich tradition of reincarnation. In Kaduma itself, Kaduma, as I shared is a ancient but new teaching it's a contemporary kind of revelation or expression that 
doesn't work with those ancient practices in their traditional format, but really is, is more of a secular, it's contextualized more in a secular framework. So we're not doing like um, religious or ritualistic practices from Judaism like the Kabbalists would do. So in Kaduma, we, we don't use reincarnation as a central organizing principle. Uh, and also in the journey of freedom, the journey, the understanding of reincarnation shifts quite a bit because it's no longer past lives, but concurrent lives. Because one of the realizations in the journey of freedom is, is you could say the collapsing dimensionality of time and space. And with the collapsing of the property of distance in time and space, all we have is the radical now. And so we can experience ourselves in parallel lives, in parallel universes, in parallel realities, but there's no longer the sense that they transpired in the past. There's the distinct sense from when we're in the journey of freedom mode that these are all lives and realities that are occurring concurrently. So yeah, I've heard different. other people say that too, that you know, our human mind and nervous system is an interface which, which imbues a sense of a linearity or sequentialness to things which are actually simultaneous in, in reality. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there's a few questions that came in from um, Jose Luis Soler in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Jose is associated with something called futureprimitive.org, which is a podcast that looks like it's really cool. I don't know if I've ever listened to it, but I want to check it out. But anyway, we'll ask some of his questions. Now, the first one you may have already answered, so don't need to go on at length. But um, if there's any little bit more you want to say, feel free to say it. And that's, that is that in, in um, your book, you state that um, the Kaduma is a tantric Jewish path somehow related to Eastern lineages. You want to um, elaborate on that? Yeah. First of all, hi, Jose. <laughs> do you know Jose? Thanks for your question. Uh, sure, yeah, I do. Oh, know okay, Jose. good. We did a podcast together. Oh, okay, uh, cool. On Future Primitive, which is, mm-hmm. really, which is really fun. So your listeners could check that out. What I mean when I talk about Tantra most people are familiar with um, Tantra as it relates to either the Hindu tradition or the Buddhist tradition of Tantra, right? The Vajrayana Buddhism or the usually Kashmir Shaivism or non-dual Shaivite Tantra in Hinduism. I don't mean to suggest that Kaduma is in some sense a derivative or an expression of those Tantric lineages. I'm using the term Tantra in its general, in its much more broad sense, yeah. It shares some understandings and experiences with those traditions without necessarily having been derived from them, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a lot of you know the Primor. What what is that? Houston Smith, uh, perennial wisdom. Certain streams of wisdom just show up all over the world and bear close similarity to one another. Yeah, exactly. So, in the sense that I'm using tantra, I'm using it in the sense that any path or approach, you could say, that draws from and utilizes the, the energies of our life, life energy, energies of the body, of life, all the way to pleasure and sex and all, all of that, can be utilized as, um, as material for our awakening. We can transmute all experience into uh, fuel 
for the awakening of consciousness and the opening of perception. And in that sense, Kaduma is a tantric uh, lineage. It's not Jewish in the sense that it's, it's not, you know, kind of, you know, claiming any kind of allegiance with, with a particular religion. However, it does draw from the tantric teachings within Judaism, and there are. That's not as well known. But, uh, for example, in the, in the Hasidic lineage, Hasidism was a particular expression of the Jewish mystical wisdom stream that appeared, you know, in the 18th century, but developed in different directions, especially in its early sort of generations. There was an, there was an explicitly tantric set of practices and teachings within Hasidism. They called it Avudashe Begashmiut in Hebrew, which means uh, practice or worship through corporality, through materiality. And the whole premise of that was that we can use our physical experience, our physical life energy, including pleasure, at eating, drinking, sex, work, as the, as the not just the, uh, the optional, but as the optimal vehicles for awakening. So Kaduma very much uh, works with that, uh, that tantric approach to spiritual practice. And this is embodied in the way we work with contraction. That we are not trying to turn away from our experience, but we turn toward all of our, you know, all of our experience, uh, regardless of uh, its content. All contents of our experience can be portals to the mystery. Okay, good. Um, second question. Being a tantric path means also the veneration of the feminine principle. Is there a practice within the Kaduma teachings related to the Shekinah? Yes, there are. The Shekinah is at the center of it. Shekinah, Shekinah is a Hebrew word that means presence. Really. So I was talking about the divine presence. Um, and the... Uh, in the Jewish mystical tradition, the presence teachings have to do with embodiment, with the realm of creations, very similar to the way Shakti is used in the Hindu Tantric tradition. You know, it has to do with the, the, the manifestation of the formlessness into form, into the realm of creation. And so all of the material of the created realm, including the body, and the physical forms of reality are expressions of the Shekhinah, of the divine presence. It's the presencing of the formless nature of reality into form. It's being, becoming presence as form. That is represented by this feminine principle. Now, again, the feminine and the masculine are principles. They're not meant as gender or biological distinctions. Every human consciousness is embodies both feminine and masculine principles. We both have our formless nature and in the realm of form. We both have the transcendent and the imminent. We both have the unmanifest and the manifest, the infinite and the finite, the absence and the presence. All of these represent these kind of the polarity of creation. And so in Kaduma, we work a lot with the realm of presence, which is the feminine, which is the Shekhinah. We work with it through embodiment practices through working with uh, presence and consciousness as it 
uh, reveals itself through our embodied experience. And we work with the, the physical forms of creation as portals to the absolute nature of reality and ultimately to the realization of the unification and the unity of the two. As I've discussed earlier, that they're, they're two sides of the same truth. We work with it mostly through presencing embodiment uh, practices and in our overall approach to transmuting the content of our experience. One example I always think of when I think of the sort of the, the divine in form infused into all the forms of creation is just to you know, take a scientific analysis of anything and consider what you're actually looking at. One example I've often used is like they say that if you took um, a gram of hydrogen and made all the atoms in it the size of unpopped popcorn kernels, they would cover the continental United States nine miles deep. And consider how perfectly each one of those little atoms is functioning within itself and in relationship to all the other atoms in terms of the forces of you know, attraction and impulsion. And then consider that the whole universe is like that everywhere. And you just get, it's mind-boggling to consider the, the vastness of intelligence which orchestrates everything from the tiniest to the largest. They say in Sanskrit, smaller than the smallest, bigger than the biggest. And when I think that way, I just, you know, kind of dazzled by the, the display of divinity that we're actually living in and looking at and interacting with all the time. It is totally magical and mysterious. Okay, here's this third question you know Thich Nhat Hanh was famous for saying the next Buddha may be the Sangha do you have any um, commentary on that or his quest the way he phrased his question is is the next Messiah the awakened Sangha to paraphrase Thich Nhat Hanh yes yeah, so Thich Nhat Hanh did, did phrase, phrase it as the Buddha mm-hmm. um, in our teaching in the Kaduma teaching we uh we very much hold a similar perspective. This I mentioned the soulship. The soulship uh, is sort of the name of our, of our of our school of our program. Soulship, like starships. Yeah, soulship. Okay. And okay. now soulship is a has there's many levels of meaning to that, right? On the one hand, it's like fellowship, soulship, uh-huh. right? So we're a community. The soulship is our community, or it's a conveyance for souls. Exactly. And it's also like a spaceship, like it's a vehicle yeah. for travel through inner space. In our case, it's inner space and outer space because inner and outer at some point become one. Um, so the soulship represents the collective body of presence that forms when we come together intentionally in community to, you know, to explore truth, to explore our experience to understand the nature of reality. When we, when human beings come together, like we're doing here, this, you know, uh, Rick, what you bring to the world is a kind of manifestation of that, of this principle of the soulship. And it's bringing uh, the, the intentional heart uh, for truth into communion with each other. And then what forms is like a certain kind of presence starts to... Um, start to manifest in the relational field and in the collective field as we gather, you know, it's like, you know, when we were at sand, it was like, that, you know, yeah, it's that. definitely a collective consciousness there. 
I used to engage in group meditation practices and sometimes with as many as 8,000 people. And boy, you know, just a very powerful field gets generated by all those people doing that together. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a very, very powerful thing, especially with the advent of technology, which, you know, we're, we get to do here, right? This is what we're practicing. Yeah. We're practicing uh, soul shipping through technology because you have, instead of gathering together in, a, in, a, in the same location, we're scattered all over the world. But right now, like as I speak through this medium of technology, we can actually, all the listeners right now, and not just all the listeners who are listening live, but all the listeners who will listen and watch in future time through the perspective of the journey of freedom, like through that realization, what we recognize is that all of those moments of connection in future past present time can actually uh, be unified in a singular point of non-dimensional interconnectivity nice and so the soul ship has the potential and as we move into this new paradigm you know the of, of technology of the next the next paradigm of technology um and inter you know it's like we're being called as a collective to uh step into more radically i think uh, this more non-dimensional potential of our human nature of our human consciousness. And it's through this kind of soulship, you know, certainly coming together in person is, is remains a powerful vehicle and, and we need to, you know, capitalize on that potential, but we also have the potential to now include the non-dimensional and this soulship as the next, uh, you know, the next Buddha or the next Messiah, if we want to, right kind of use the, the language of the Hebrew tradition, the next Buddha, the next Messiah, as the Sangha makes much more sense, actually, to me, because my experience of this messianic light, of this point of light, rather, is, uh, is intimately connected, you could say, to the constellation of stars, that constitute all of humanity. In other words, the vast constellation of, of stars is what forms the starlight. The starlight is not just an emanation of one particular light. It's actually the collective light of all the stars. And so as humanity wakes up more, and it is happening, albeit slowly, however, there seems to be a more of, a, of, a, of an uptick in terms of this process. As this starts to happen, we have this potential for the stars to meet in unity in this non-dimensional space. And in some bizarre way, technology is actually pointing us to that potential. And in that non-dimensional space where all the stars actually come into one, we have the formation of the next Buddha, the next Sangha, which is, in fact, the Sangha, the next Buddha or the next Messiah, which is, in fact, the Sangha. Great answer. 
you have a gift for articulating really deep principles, which I think is symptomatic of a great degree of depth that you've experienced, and also a great degree of integration that you've undergone of that depth. So it's really cool talking to you. I appreciate it so much. So I should wrap it up. I really appreciated talking to Zvi, and um, I'll be linking to his website as always, and to his book and so on. So you can check out his page on batgap.com and just hop from there to those things. In conclusion, give us a quick overview of um, the ways in which people could engage with your teaching. Yeah, so if you go to www.kaduma.org, K-E-D-U-M-A-H, all of our offerings are, are there. And basically, we have different modules that people can plug into depending on your situation and what what makes sense for you. We have some online courses you could take. We have some intro workshops that are more like weekend type uh, workshop events that you can attend in person. And then we have a more comprehensive program that right now it's three years with uh, several retreats, in-person retreats a year with me. And we do a combination of meditation practices, teachings. Uh, we do a lot of interpersonal type work and exercises that are really rich. You can check out on the website. We have some videos of teachings and audios that you can check out and you know have a look at. But really the soulship, which I mentioned, is the way to get the, really the curriculum of Kaduma teachings, which really walks us step by step through these different dimensions or these different journeys of freedom. And it's totally experiential. This is not a kind of academic or intellectual exercise. This is a journey of inner exploration and discovery. And it's super fun and exciting. I personally love sharing the process with others and seeing what's possible for human beings, it's yeah. really quite amazing, really quite phenomenal. So the Soulship is our is our multi year program of retreats, and that's that's the best option for someone who really wants to get deep into the teachings. Great, thanks. We'll be seeing you around, I'm sure. Rick, thank you, and blessings for all the amazing work that you do. And thank you for having me on. I look forward to seeing you again. Oh yes, probably you'll be at Sand, maybe, or we'll see you someplace. I have a lot of relatives in Boulder. Maybe I'll get out there sometime and I'll give you a call when I do. Definitely. Get some coffee on uh, Pearl Street. Oh, I can't handle the caffeine. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have a decaf. Yeah. Uh, tea, tea. <laughs> yeah, tea. Purple tea. <laughs> dokie. So thanks a lot. And uh, thanks to those who have been listening or watching. And um, I won't be doing any um, recording any more interviews for the next month or so, but I'll be releasing ones that I've recorded when I was out at Sand. So There'll still be interviews coming out every week. So we'll see you for the next one. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye, V. Thank you. Mm -hmm.